The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to Berean Bible Church. Um, Last month or so, yeah, early part of last month before the conference, I stood up here and discussed a message on the sign of Jonah. And during that message, I had a short segment where I dealt with apocalyptic language um, that we find in the scripture, things like that, that too many people tend to miss the significance of when they get to the New Testament and find that same language. Um, I only took a little piece of action there, so we're going to go a little deeper today into this topic. Going beyond those covered Previously, the verses that we'll cover today are some of the key passages that set the stage and lay the foundation for what is necessary for a proper understanding of New Testament prophecy, as they would say, the scriptures that tend to fall under future prophecy. Sadly, when it comes to the New Testament Bible prophecy scenario, the average reader and sadly many teachers today are oblivious to how the very same language comes from the Old Testament prophetic passages long since fulfilled. Without this foundation from the Old, it leads many to interpret the metaphors, idioms, etc. that they contain, to misinterpret them. This modern generation continues to have this disconnect, this idea of a separation of the storyline between the Old and the New Testaments, and it has greatly confused their theology. I have said it before, and I'll say it again, there is a great injustice done When the Bible publishers make these New Testament editions, they hand these out obviously as cheap and they can pass these little Bibles out, but for many years I've just, it's just not the greatest thing. The more I study and learn, the more I realize this is not doing people justice because they're giving them a portion of the story. And it's just, it's confusing things even further because it's this disconnect between old and new as if we don't need the old any longer. You can never fully understand, comprehend, or appreciate the story of the New Testament without a firm grasp of the story in the Old Testament. The New Testament is only good news when you read and fully understand the old, the bad news that's presented in the Old Testament, the story that it's going, leading up to. The gospel message of the New is the completion and closing chapters of the story started in the Old Testament. Instilled in the hearts and minds of so many believers is this false dichotomy that the Old Testament was for those people and that the New Testament is for us. Due to that mentality, people have misused and abused so much of the New Testament that it has made parts of the gospel message twisted from their original intent. Now, back in the church's 2012 conference, my lecture back then had, uh, was dealing with the idea of understanding the whole story of Scripture especially of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, which is what I'm talking about here, in order to better understand the story of the New Testament. And I opened up in that message by telling a story of a shocking question that was raised by one man. This man asked a pastor friend of his, what is good news about the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the descendant of David? Now, if somebody does not comprehend what was said beforehand in the Old Testament, about the coming Messiah or the struggles of the people and their promised hope, then the information about a Messiah seems trivial for sure. I had also discussed the response that a pastor gave to the question, did Jesus preach the gospel? 
the pastor reasoned that since the gospel is justification by faith in the work of Christ and the cross, then it is impossible to say that Jesus was preaching the gospel. The pastor had answered, nope, Jesus couldn't have. No one understood the gospel until Paul. No one could understand the gospel until all the cross, until after the cross and resurrection and Pentecost. That is a truncated New Testament only story that makes little sense out of the context in the whole story. And again, that's the idea of what was Jesus preaching. The gospel message is the message of the Old Testament being fulfilled. So it, it, it leads to these truncated views. Now, there are so many other things in the New Testament that are totally misunderstood because of these same type of reasons. So when it comes to the Bible story, without the old, the new makes little sense, and that is why things have gotten so badly off track in the modern church. This is indeed a problem caused by too heavy of a focus on the New Testament only. There are so many other things in the New Testament that are totally misunderstood because of this same type of problem. <clears throat> it's just... The, the references to the Old Testament in the New, if you don't understand and grasp the language and meaning of the original references, it'll lead you down some very wacky interpretations. Now, in this message, I would like to focus on national judgment language in general, especially dealing with the sun, the moon, and the stars type terminology. A while back, David preached a, ser- a sermon on the four blood moon issue, back when that was the big hype. And it really brought out all kinds of crazy comments on our YouTube channel. I think people are still out there commenting on that. People have these physical understandings of the whole view there. And so, unfortunately, the responses were pretty sad. Some people would just reply by saying something like, obviously these things haven't happened because we've not seen the stars fall from the sky or the sky is not rolled up like a scroll or other cosmic catastrophe-type scenarios in the Scriptures. Of course, one of the main scriptures raised is Matthew twenty four twenty nine, which we read earlier. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Sure, if you just read this verse at face value, it would appear to be talking about the end of the entire world, where the actual sun, moon, and stars, and creation itself are eventually destroyed. Unfortunately, this is the general understanding by most. But we shall find that, in fact, this is not what this language is talking about at all. Another similar star-to-earth issue is found in Revelation 12, 3-4, where the tail of the dragon sweeps a third of the stars down to earth. Yet this type of verse is seen as being symbolic and not literal. Not, of course, everybody believes that, but John Walford, who was probably one of the biggest named dispensational teachers back in the day. He was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary for many, I think, like close to 30 years. Now, he agrees on this verse with E.W. Bullinger, who said that it is impossible for us to take this as symbolic or as other than what it literally says. The difficulties of the symbolic interpretation are inseparable, while no difficulties whatever attend the literal interpretation. So a symbolic interpretation presents difficulties, and a literal does not. I would say, on the contrary, a literal approach has major difficulties. Stars tend to be much larger than Earth, and a single star colliding with the Earth would obliterate it. So the thought that even more than one is inconceivable. 
Walvert and others get around this problem, or they try to, by saying these stars are actually more like meteorites. But that doesn't really solve the issue. If evolution proponents claim that a single meteorite hit the Earth and destroyed all life on Earth during the dinosaur age, as they say, then what would a third of the meteorites hitting the Earth be? Obviously, and again, inconceivable that people could see that. The problem with all of this is that they fail to understand how the Bible uses terms like these over and over again, and so they assign them literal modern definitions that are biblically inaccurate. We cover this from this pulpit frequently, that the Hebrew symbolisms and idioms are often ignored or unknown by many today. When you read Genesis 37 and the story of Joseph, we find a clear-cut showing of the understanding of how God's people would reference words like sun, moon, and stars. This is some of what I covered in the message last month, but it's worth repeating to be foundation here. The story shows us that it was a historic understanding well known to them. So this is not, this is not where it had originated. They already knew this before this first appearing in, in Genesis 37. It says, then he dreamed another dream. This is uh, Joseph. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, taking a modern approach to this verse, I guess we should understand that Joseph had a dream where one day he would basically be a god, and the literal physical elements of the universe were going to really bow down to him. Of course, we know that that was not the case because we know that even his family did not even come up with such a crazy conclusion to that. They said, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Where did he say anything about his mothers and brothers in here? His father's confused, obviously. But you can see they clearly understood Joseph to be referencing the parents as the sun and moon and his 11 siblings as stars. These references were commonly interpreted as representing governing authorities, as understood from Joseph's use here. But they were also often descriptions of, descriptive of nations and or kingdoms. This understanding is not even alien to us, modern Americans, because if you really stop and think about it, our own U.S. flag has stars on them. Each one represents a separate nation-state that is part of the Union, or a political power, basically. Other countries use stars in a similar manner on their flag. So, let us look at some quotes from other sources on this particular topic. Before the advent of spe- uh, speculative exegesis, most Bible commentaries who studied the whole Bible understood the relationship of collapsing universe language with the destruction of the religion and civil state of the Jewish nation. That's from Gary Marr. He's fairly modern. I'm sure most of you know of him from his last day's madness. Now, his book actually deals quite well with this topic in general. And I have pulled quite a few other quotes from this book where he quotes, and they say, that is, the Jewish heaven shall perish, and the sun and the moon of the glory and happiness shall be darkened, brought to nothing. The sun is the religion of the Jewish church. The moon is the government of the Jewish state. And the stars are the judges and doctors of both. And then he compares Isaiah and Ezekiel. That's John Lightfoot from 1859. Thomas Scott from 1832, says, The darkening of the sun and the moon, the falling of the stars, and the shaking of the powers of heavens denote the utter extinction of the light of prosperity and privilege to the Jewish nation, the unhinging of authority of their princes and priests, 
the abject miseries to which the people in general, especially their chief persons, would be reduced, and the moral and religious darkness to which they would be consigned. Dalton from 1842 says, Our Savior goes on to set forth the calamities that shall befall the Jewish nation immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem. So entire was the subversion of their ecclesiastical and civil state that it may be metaphorically represented by the sun, moon, and stars losing their light and all the heavenly bodies being dissolved. John Forster of 1847, in ancient hieroglyphic writings, the sun, moon, and stars represented empires and states with their sovereigns and nobility. The eclipse of their luminaries was said to denote temporal national disasters or an entire overthrow of any state. This is still an Eastern mode of writing, and there are some classical examples of it. The prophets frequently employ it so that their style seems to be speaking hieroglyphic, a speaking hieroglyphic. Thus, Isaiah describes the destruction of Babylon and Ezekiel and that of Egypt. Another aspect of it is seen as related to Israel's surrounding pagan nations that worshipped these celestial bodies. Well, more precisely, they worshipped deities represented by these celestial bodies. This, too, is something David's touched on in the past, but... You have verses like Deuteronomy 4.19, And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the people under the whole heaven. They were allotted to them, not to, the, to his people. The practice of worshiping these celestial objects or the gods they represent was obviously taken up by God's people at times when they strayed from God's commandment, as we see evidence in Kings, where it says, And the kings commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron, and carried carried their ashes to Bethel, and he disposed the priests, whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. <clears throat> so it, became, it becomes clearly obvious that the usage of language that includes terminology like sun, moon, and stars is not always to be considered literal and must be judged based on the literary type that they appear within. And what is truly odd is the inconsistencies and contradictory views that some commentators come to on this subject. There are many that scream about taking things literally, yet even they do not do so in their own theological systems. Even when they do interpret the language symbolically in places, they do not always stay consistent, and they turn right around and interpret the same language usage differently in other places for no textual reason. For example, the literalist Alan Ross has mentioned it at least twice, with one of the books being edited by John Walford, the dispensational teacher I'd mentioned before, had mentioned himself saying, in ancient cultures, these astronomical symbols represent rulers. Now, the second dream involved celestial images, the sun, moon, and stars being easily recognized for their significance for rulership. So we agree that Here's a little of saying that he understands the symbolic nature of it. But then when you get to Revelation 12, with the woman 
clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and the crown of stars. Well, again, they're quick to leave their literalism to understand these also symbolically. John Walbert himself says, the description of the woman clothed with the sun and the moon is an allusion to Genesis 37, 9-11, where these heavenly bodies represent Jacob and Israel, thereby identifying the woman and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. In the same context, the stars represent the patriarchs, the sons of Jacob. The symbolism may extend beyond this to represent in some sense the glory of Israel and her ultimate triumph over her enemies. So again, they don't look at these things as literal. Yet even having said that and and having that knowledge and stating it in their teachings, when they get to Matthew 24, 29, where Jesus is drawing from the same Genesis symbolism when stating that the sun is darkened and the stars falling, they appear to do a flip-flop in understanding and claim it to be a discussion of literal celestial destruction. So even though the scripture clearly teaches that those things were to happen before the generation hearing him would end, they have to interpret other factors to make it work on their initial erroneous understanding. They fail to see the prophetic discussion of the nation represented by the temple being described in the same celestial language of destruction as used often in scriptures. Milton Terry, one commentator from days of old, puts it ever so finely when he says, too little study of the Old Testament ideas of judgment and apocalyptic writing uh, style, language, and style would seem to be the main reason for this one-sided exegesis. It will require more than assertion to convince thoughtful men that the figurative language of Isaiah and Daniel, admitted on all hands to be such in the ancient prophets, is to be literally interpreted when used by Jesus and Paul. Let's look now beyond Genesis to get an even better backdrop of how this use of celestial language has been used throughout the scriptures elsewhere. First, we'll start in Isaiah 13, which many say was prophesied around 730 B.C. and is a word spoken against Babylon of that time. According to the the IVP, InterVarsity Press, Bible background commentary, at that time, the Neo-Assyrian Empire was probably the most powerful world network that had ever been seen up to that point. They subjugated Babylonia and its Chaldean rulers like they did so many others. As many of the nations tried to break free over time, they caused revolts and uprisings. Shortly after 630 BC, as the Assyrian Empire began to crumble, Babylonia and Media combined forces to put extra pressure on the last of the Assyrian kings. And with his death, the empire was over too. After that began the emergence of Nebuchadnezzar and the new Babylonian empire. Now, in general terms, the use of sun, moon, and stars in Hebrew culture, as we have seen, is often commonly understood as referring to those in a place of authority or a political power. But at this time, the the prophet using these terms could be directly targeting the deities of another people. According to the Mesopotamian creation epic, Enuma Elish, the Greek god Marduk had placed the constellations in order to oversee the forces of nature and to assist him in the management of creation. This is a creation story from people in Mesopotamia. At that time, the movements of the heavenly bodies were considered omens about things that would occur on earth, and therefore astronomical observances were a constant practice for them. The findings were recorded and collected in the Enuma Anu Enlil. That's the name of a book. In Mesopotamia, Egypt, and Greece, 
in Mesopotamia, Egypt, and Greece. This information was used to prepare individual horoscopes. Way back then, they had horoscopes. Using this, lucky and unlucky days would be determined by consulting the Guild of Magicians and Astrologers. So, knowing this, how important a part these constellations played in for this nation, when we come to the text speaking of judgment upon them, pay attention to the celestial language contained here. It says, well, for the day of the Lord is near, well, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction come from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp and the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Isaiah 13, 6-11. By stating that on the day of Yahweh all the celestial bodies would be darkened, Isaiah is not only simply saying their power and leaders will be removed. He is claiming that the glory of Yahweh will outshine and mask all the other supposed gods that these nations worship. Since Assyria and Egypt both worship the supposed sun god and their, as their primary deity, and the moon god Sin was of great importance in Babylonia, it is no surprise that the prophet targets those gods of that arrogant people. Many agree that this prophecy was fulfilled in 539 B.C. when Cyrus the Persian took Babylon. But hopefully we see how the celestial bodies of sun, moon, and stars are relevant to the judgment and were not considered to be a literal event at that time. Also, hopefully you note that we see references here popping up of women in labor, which should trigger in our minds similar language that we find of the birth pains in places like Jeremiah 48 and 49, as well as the New Testament, Matthew 24 and Mark 13. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Now, moving forward to Isaiah 19, we find a prophecy spoken against Egypt. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. What we find here again is not the celestial language that we, is not quite the celestial language we've been discussing so far, but it's a type of apocalyptic symbolism that we find in conjunction with that language as we are getting closer into the New Testament. Here in Isaiah we have God riding on the clouds, as well as a little known deep, as well as a little more decreation-type language of rivers completely drying up. Associating God with using clouds is not a new idea, as we know he used clouds to represent his presence to Moses during the exodus from Egypt. However, now it is a symbol of judgment as God is coming, riding on a cloud to bring destruction. As we are told in Psalm 103, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot he rides on the wings of the wind. 
So the idea of God riding a cloud is an established idea that is not considered literally taking place. Actually, some say that this is the type of language uh, is taken from texts that speak of the Ugaritic god Baal. And I know this has been covered before by Dave. In the stories contained in the two texts of the Aquat epic and the Baal and Anat, Baal is considered and referred to as the rider of the clouds. <clears throat> and as Dave's covered before, uh, this can be a message, can be a direct attack against that nation's God when they talk about God being the rider on the clouds. His attributes include commanding the storms, unleashing lightning, and the divine warrior rushing into war. This is Baal. He uses, he even appears in the Egyptian El Amarna texts, some of these weird old writings. This language is in these earlier texts is very similar to Yahweh, who is the creator, fertility God, and divine warrior. So one of the ways that Yahweh presented himself to his people, the Israelites, in order to portray himself as the true God and sole divine power is by assuming the titles and the powers of the ancient Near Eastern gods. Then we get over into Isaiah 34, where we're presented with the coming judgment against Edom, and it is described again with this destructive language. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fail as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill of heaven in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Some translations say that the mountains melted with their flowing blood. Obviously, the mountains didn't literally melt or flow with blood, but some try to make it more literal by saying that the amount of blood was so much that it loosed up enough dirt on the mountains that big chunks of it slid away. John Gill sees it. John Gill's another from the hundreds of years ago. hundred years ago. Um, John Gill sees it this way, but considers it more of a hyperbole, stating it as it being written in more extreme fashion than it truly was, exaggerating. He says the saying is, a hyperbolic expression denoting the great number of the slain upon the mountains and the great quantity of blood shed there, which should run down in large streams and carry part of them along with it, as large and hasty showers of rain wash away the earth and carry it along with them. Such a hyperbole, see Revelation 14.20. Now, when I was first reading through this verse, my mind immediately went to Revelation 14.20 also, so it was good to see that an ancient commentator like Gill was on the same track, that I was on the same track as him. So they were not totally oblivious to this language usage. In Revelation, we are told that the blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for roughly 200 square miles. Hyperbole indeed. Yet I have never, I have heard people, I have heard people go into great detail as to how this will literally occur. Blood flowing greatly, rivers of blood. All of these are signs of the aftermath of God's judgment, and aside from Moses actually making a river of blood, were not considered literal occurrences. Also here in Isaiah, we are told the hosts of heaven shall rot or be consumed as some have it. So again, here is language dealing with the elements of heaven and speaks of it as if they will cease to exist. 
Again, the IVP Bible Background Commentary, which is a fairly popular set, provides great insight from some of the leading Bible scholars on a majority of verses. And on this verse in Isaiah, they state, imagery of disappearing stars, always in command of all creation, Yahweh shows mastery over the heavens and celestial bodies, causing their brightness to be snuffed out in a reversal of creation. Prominent astral motifs in the Mesopotamian religion religion included the idea that the gods were given stations within the heavens and their astral likenesses marked the zones of the calendar year. In the celestial omens, the disappearing of a star or planet always suggested that the related deity had suffered defeat in battle. Astral deities were considered among the most prominent and powerful of the gods. The dissolving of the stars and the fall of the starry hosts are therefore related. Both the natural manifestation as well as the deity connected to it are overcome in this act of judgment. So, not only are we seeing the terms used as representative of natural judgment, but again, they are understood as referring also to the heavenly powers assigned to a nation, their gods, and the judgment of them also. This Isaiah verse also states that the sky would roll up as a scroll, which is obviously symbolic since when this judgment came about, the literal sky did not roll up. Though sadly, some seem to expect that it will happen in our future because of what the New Testament says. The Bible background commentary continues, adding some additional related insight. The three major Babylonian gods are not represented by stars, but by the sky itself. Anu is the sky god, and the horizon is divided into three paths, connected to Anu, Enlil, and Ea. Therefore, rolling up the sky is an act of judgment against the three main deities of the ancient world. Now, Moving on to Jeremiah 4, we find a prophecy against Jerusalem at the time, a prophecy that was fulfilled not too long afterwards when Nebuchadnezzar II took over in 586 B.C. I will touch on just some of the highlighted verses from this section. (coughs) Behold, he comes like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. Here again, as we saw in Isaiah 19, we find more of the symbolism of God coming on the clouds in judgment. As we continue to find here mountains trembling uh, in verse 24, the heavens becoming dark in verse 28, and the symbolism of a woman crying out in labor pains in verse 31. Actually, if you read verses 23 through 26, you will find Jeremiah taking imagery from the Genesis 1-2 creation account and using it in poetic form to describe a reversal of creation. This language is used to basically say that all that they thought was consistent in life is now falling apart for them. While this type of language is commonly used in prophetic literature in connection with the day of the Lord and coming judgment, it is, of course, never understood to be literal by them. Taking a brief look at Zephaniah 1, we get another prophecy of the same coming judgment of Jerusalem. And, of course, we find similar language yet from a different prophet. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Again, we find darkness and clouds mentioned here. All of this language is wrapped tightly in the symbolism surrounding the national judgment coming from God and, again, is not considered literal. 
we jump to Ezekiel 30-32, we find the prophecy of judgment against Egypt. I have read some who say that this was accomplished when Cambyses of Persia conquers Egypt in 525 B.C. And others I have heard say that, based on what Josephus says, it was actually fulfilled in 587 when Babylon destroyed them. The emphasis for us here does not require us to delve too deeply into the actual date of the occurrence, but simply to understand that this event has already occurred, and this language, again, was not literally fulfilled at that time. Here in Ezekiel, as expected, we find the same language used. For the day, of the Lord, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near, it will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Here we find clouds again in the story of judgment as becoming, com- as, as becoming common, we, we see, over and over. It is the day of the Lord, a day he has set for national judgment. Later in that same chapter, at Teparanini's, that long name, the day shall be dark when I break there the yoke bars of Egypt and her proud might shall come to an end in her. She shall be covered by a cloud and her daughters shall go into captivity. Now, I will state that, of course, not every time we see clouds mentioned are we to assume it is referring to Yahweh riding them in judgment. Oftentimes it is used poetically to mean that a calamity is falling upon them, like we see in this verse here. For instance, in the Targum, which is the Aramaic version of the Hebrew Scriptures that was used in the first century by many a rabbi, they put this verse like this, A king with his army shall cover her as a cloud ascends and covers the earth. So while this is not a reference to God riding the clouds, It is still a symbolic reference to clouds involved in the judgment of God. And then moving into Ezekiel 32, we see language that we find later in the New Testament and that may be related to the verses that are also often misunderstood. It says, And I will cast you on the ground, on the open field I will fling you, and will cause all the birds of the heavens to settle on you, and I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. And the same language is used later in the book when speaking of the fall of Gog. It says, you shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the people who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. And later in the chapter, as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather for all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. Obviously, there is no denying a connection used in Revelation 19 when it says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to, the, to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now, while I did not delve into, the, into much depth to determine if this is necessarily a connection, one cannot help to understand or be immediately struck by the similarities of this bird talk that we are seeing, that we see also in Luke 17, where it says, I will tell you in that night there will be two in one bed, One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? 
He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This verse is often misused as some sort of rapture of Christians off the earth, but in reality it is not. I like the way that, again, reformer, Reformed theologian John Gill states it. The one shall be taken not by the preaching of the gospel into the kingdom of God or gospel dispensation, nor by angels to meet Christ in the air and to be introduced into his kingdom and glory, but by the eagles, the Roman army, and either killed or carried captive by them. This is a term of judgment. The idea of the post-judgment dead being eaten by the bird of the air seems to be a common thread as we have seen and is usually understood as an ultimate shameful end and not to have a decent burial as was common, but instead to be food for the fowl of the air. Now we continue on in Ezekiel 32. It says, I will drench the land even to the mountains with their flowing blood, and the ravines will be, filled, will be full of you. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with the cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Again, notice here we have similar events mentioned earlier as in Isaiah 34, where mountains are flowing with blood. Hopefully you're beginning to see how this type of language is becoming a common thread in the apocalyptic symbolic language used throughout Scripture. This is not the language of literal world-ending events happening over and over again. These are all national judgments. Now, most people tend to be quite familiar with what is said in Joel, but it is as if they ignore or just never read all of the usage of the language of the Old Testament, and so from Joel on into the New Testament, they believe everything will be literally happening for some reason or another. Since we are clearly told that these words from Joel began to be accomplished in the book of Acts, we know that they were not literal happenings. However, as before, we find the same types of language used here. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on the holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, the day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Like Their like has never been before, nor will ever again be them through the never again after them through the years of all generations. Joel 2, 1-2. Note that here we have the blowing of a trumpet at the day of the Lord, a day of darkness, gloom, and clouds, all things that hopefully ring a bell as things that we've read time and time again and we find in the New Testament, which we'll get to in a minute. Joel continues, The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. While some may want to simply say these are solar eclipses or a blood moon eclipse, it must not be ignored that it is the most often understood as symbolically blotting out of the powers and rulers of the nations being judged. And as mentioned, may be directed to the deities of the nation. And we find similar language continuing on into chapter 3 of Joel, where it says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. 
<clears throat> now, of course, it could be that at times this language of the sun and moon being darkened could be referring to an actual literal eclipse or that the event was accompanied by such a literal event. We're not ruling that out as a possibility, but knowing that God controls the celestial bodies and knowing that he gave them for signs and seasons, it is not out of the realm that it is possible that these disastrous events were accompanied by an eclipse as a sign also. And some commentators say that judgment scenarios like this may have been so intense and large, producing so much fire and smoke, that it could have filled the sky to the point of covering the light of the sun, moon, or stars from the sight of those on the earth in that particular area where this was going down. While these ideas are not an impossible scenario, it must not be considered a necessary thing to have gone down that way in order to fulfill the symbolism of the language used. Since the usage of the sun, moon, and stars has already been established as symbolic language used of national judgment, even if these natural occurrences did happen, the thrust of this language is not necessarily leaning towards that type of physical understanding. And while some may use this angle to explain away or strictly literalize these celestial entities becoming dark, this technique cannot be used in the places where the stars are said to fall to earth or other such language that strays from that general meaning. We'll look possibly at that later. Now moving on, Amos gives us a a prophecy against Israel, one that was fulfilled in 722 B.C. when Sargon II of Assyria attacked them. Again, the scene of judgment is referred to as a time of darkness. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Yahweh was angry with the people of Israel, and he said, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. As the Bible background commentary explains, Amos' attack is addressed at the empty, mechanically celebrated Hagem, the technical term for the three major pilgrimage feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Harvest, and Feast of Ingathering. Religious festivals offered frequent opportunities for celebration, communal meals, and social gatherings. What has been designed as a means to praise and honor God, however, was not bringing any pleasure to him. Hopefully this brings to mind some of the scathing rebukes that Christ made against the Pharisees over their abuse of the law and artificial worship of Yahweh during their time. Their very actions and lifestyles had made them a rejected covenant people, and judgment was coming on them too. And closing out this section from Amos, in chapter 8, we again find celestial language which is symbolic in nature as before. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Many commentators agree that this is best understood metaphorically as related to the sudden sudden calamity that would again come upon the people, just as we have seen previously. It can also again be directed to the pagan sun god who who at their seemingly strength of the day is suddenly snuffed out. Again, this event did not literally occur. We see a similar usage and discussion in Jeremiah 15, where it says, I have made their widows more in number than the sands of the sea. I have brought against the mothers of young men a destroyer at noonday. 
I have made anguish and terror fall upon them suddenly. She who bore seven has grown feeble. She has fainted away. Her son went down while it was yet day. She has been ashamed and disgraced, and the rest of them I will give to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. In Nahum, Nineveh is to be brought under judgment, which took place when the Medes and Babylonians destroyed them in 612 B.C. And wouldn't you know it, we find the same kind of language used there. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. If taken literal, it would appear that this was a catastrophic, earth-shattering, world destruction taking place. But again, this is simply language of judgment and national destruction and not worldly upheaval. Then in verse 8 it says, But with an overflowing flood he will make a complete he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whirlwinds and storms, clouds under his feet, dry seas and rivers, mountains quaking, floods, all of these things that we have seen before in judgment settings. I would like to say a quick word about the mountains quaking. We have seen mountains mentioned at times and in various ways in these judgments. But here we are specifically seeing them quaking. In Micah 4 we are told, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountains of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Micah is seeing Mount Zion as being elevated above every other mountain in the world. So what's the significance of that? In the ancient Near East, a temple mountain represented the deity worshipped there and symbolized the deity's presence with his people, the deity's abiding victory over chaos a gateway into the deity's heavenly presence and the deity's rule over the territory it dominated. Micah's superlative for Zion as the highest mountain and his comparison above the hills helps to validate that he aims to contrast Mount Zion and so the Lord who is worshipped there with pagan temples and their false deities, as one Old Testament scholar says. So again, symbolic language aimed at another nation's gods. Turning to Psalm 18, we see similar mountains, language of mountains quaking, as well as a possible connection of the mountains and the temple of the Lord idea. As David was in distress by the hand of Saul, he called unto the Lord, saying, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Actually, many places in the book of Psalms, we find mountains in relation to God. But that would be a whole other discussion, so I won't go much further than this one comparison. So, to sum up this brief journey through the Old Testament prophets, we must come away remembering that, 
Unlike prose narrative, it should not be assumed that prophetic speeches and their writings are to be taken at face value. Prophecy is commonly expressed in poetry, which in terse, is terse and rich in figures of speech and invocative symbols. The writing prophets are identified as prophets by their patently inspired poetry, not just by their amazing predictions in conformity with Israel's covenants. The same thing can be said of the first century prophetic writings as well. They should not be assumed as being understood simply at face value as many try to force them to be. So, as we turn now to the New Testament, let us do a brief recap of some of the things that we have seen used commonly so far. We've seen cloud coverings representing calamities. Yahweh, the judge, riding on the clouds, coming in judgment. Darkness in the day. Celestial oddities. Sun, moon, and stars ceasing to give light. Stars falling from the heavens. Rivers and seas dried up. Women and labor pain symbolism. Heaven, earth, and mountains shaken. The heavens rolled up with the scroll. Lots and lots of blood. So when it comes to approaching the New Testament books, in order to grasp what is going on, the reader has to consider the people and the culture of the writers and their audience at the time. The average Hebrew at that time was one who would have typically been brought up since childhood, through childhood, all along, studying and memorizing the same Hebrew scriptures that we've been going through. From their earliest days, they were steeped in the language and understanding of the entire story of the people of God. So they understood the symbolic language being used. As readers then, we must remember that the apostles were pretty much all Hebrews, likewise, brought up in the same manner resembling this. So their speech and terminology would be layered with this type of symbolism too. Sure, we know the religious leaders of the day had messed up things quite a bit with their traditions. And so they did not always totally comprehend some of those deep prophecies that we now understand better in hindsight. And it is true that while they may have been looking for a Messiah that was different than what was standing before them, we can almost positive be positive that when it came to understanding the deep, the deep symbolism of the national judgment language that we've been discussing, they were not ignorant enough to think it meant planet-ending destruction. <clears throat> That being the fact, it is no surprise to think that when they heard the words of our Lord in places like Matthew 24, that they would have not been foolish enough to think that it would be understood the way that many modern prophecy experts have sought to use it for the last few centuries. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So we have here celestial oddities of becoming dark in the day, stars falling from heaven, heavens being shaken, Christ coming on a cloud, and this all lines up nicely with what we have all seen and been reading so far. And if you look at the parallel passages over in Luke 21, you'll see more of the same similar language of old about the roaring of water, men shaking in fear, the powers of heaven being shaken. Another verse that speaks of the same first century soon coming judgment is Revelation 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth 
the full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by the gate, by the gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Sun and moon darkened, stars falling, skies rolling up, mountains being removed. All the language that we have seen all along through the Old Testament judgments, none of which was ever a literal earth-shattering world-ending event. Therefore, unless the text itself gives clear testimony that this language is being used in a totally different fashion than it has ever been used for centuries by the same people who wrote the Old, then we should assume that the same prophetic and symbolic usage is being utilized here still. As good Hebrews taught from childhood all about this understanding of the languages and the idioms of their culture, they would not have heard these verses and thought of an end-of-the-world scenario. Nor would they have thought this was going to have, some, have to be some physical event where they would see the stars falling, a man riding on little clouds, or the sky rolling up like a scroll. Yet sadly, so many today believe that not only are these events to occur in a woodenly literal manner, but that these are still yet to come in our future. Actually, one of the sole reasons, I believe, that they hold that these things have to be in our future, they have yet to happen and have to be in our future, is related to the fact that they think that these are woodenly literal happenings. For it's obvious that these events have not yet occurred because we haven't seen these things happen. The world is still here. It hasn't been destroyed, and as these would literally predict but they have totally disconnected this language from the common symbolic usage as well as totally dismissing the language of eminence for the people and time in which it was written. Add to that the ignorance of the actual historical events that indeed happened within the time frame predicted by Christ, as well as that judgment that took place against those people that Christ directly addressed. And these verses have to be thrown into some future age 2,000 years past and counting in order to be occurring at some point. But until these things literally happen, some will never understand that they already have. What is really sad is that this is not some crazy interpretation that is held, the the interpretation we're given this morning is not held by a limited amount of people. It is not some interpretation that comes outside, on the outside fringe of the Christian scholarship. This is actually, all the quotes are a vast majority of what scholarship teaches. It is not the minority view in church history that's been held by a few wackos in the past. This is mainstream scholarship. I have been quoting from scholars and teachers, and this has been the understanding of the Old Testament language for centuries and centuries. And yet many, if not most, modern-day teachers and preachers are clueless and continue to preach unfounded and inaccurate interpretations of fanciful mythological proportions on these topics. The modern church is in dire need of a revival of full Bible reading to start with and then basic hermeneutics on top of that. May the Lord give revival to his church. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that we would do the work of reading it. We pray for revival in the church. We pray that all teachers and preachers out there would read it from start to finish, would read and understand the language that is repeated time and time again throughout the Scriptures, that they would be led into a proper understanding and interpretation and not 
do fanciful studies and, and strange science, sci-fi occurrences in the future. We pray that they would see this language, understand what it has to say. We thank you so much for your word. May it be cherished and read that those would understand that you would open the eyes of the people all over. We do pray for revival, that we would honor you in all that we do. We thank you so much for these things. Amen.